Osiris. to remember a time when I had to carry my swaggy stems and seeds in a Ziploc bag and they would spill everywhere and make a mess and just be awful. But I don't have to do that anymore. That's right. Because we are sponsored by a company named Kush Supply Co. or Kush Co. They're the wonderful Osiris sponsor and partner who also happens to be the largest producer of packaging products for the cannabis industry. As medical and recreational cannabis continue to be legalized, one leader has emerged as the go-to company to produce state-compliant packaging for cannabis, and that is Kushko. What does that mean? States have varying laws about how marijuana can be packaged. They need to be child-proof, comply with labeling requirements, and so on. Kush knows all the regulations for every state. The packaging doesn't have to be ugly. Kushka works with producers to create their own branding on amazingly innovative boxes, tubes, bottles, and other packages, so they look amazing and function extremely well. Kushko also produces vaping hardware and supplies. If you've been in a cannabis dispensary lately, you've definitely seen Kushko products. Kushko has offices in 10 states, plus Canada and China. Please go to kushsupplyco.com slash podcast to learn more about what they're up to. The sooner you sign out with Kushco, the sooner you can stop using that worthless dugout for your one-hitter. It's time to step it up and get into the 21st century with some products from Kushco. And with that, let's go beyond the pond. Episode 54 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting the listener to listen to other bands. A springboard of sorts. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans. But the problem with Fish fans is sometimes they can get a bit myopic 
only listen to fish. They can recount dates of shows and set lists and bust outs and anything under the sun with regard to their favorite band. But then you ask them about, I don't know, the Stone Roses, and they look at you like you got two heads. And we're always trying to do something about that. It's absolutely right. The spread of myopic fandom around the fish community is something that we are actively working against here in 2019. Um, and we've got a really cool episode here for you. This is our second episode of the year. And we've sat down with a friend, a musician, long, long, long time fish fan who had a bit of a break between shows three and four um, for a really interesting conversation. What are we doing here today, Dave? Tonight, we're going to be talking with my friend Conrad Doucette, who actually, he saw fish shows uh, beginning going far back as 1992, kind of an early 1.0 acolyte. And then uh, for reasons which he will explain, took a big break, as in a 24-year break. And he recently broke that hiatus by uh, seeing the fish show on December 29, 2018 at the Garden. So we're going to talk to him a bit about that. And uh, also, he's going to talk a bit about, um, he's a musician, he is a drummer who uh, had a hand in putting together the Day of the Dead compilation, which was the uh, big Grateful Dead covers, indie rock covers compilation, kind of spearheaded by Aaron and Bryce Destner of The National, uh, I want to say back in 2016. So I actually got to know Conrad because he spins very deep, very interesting, um, interesting Grateful Dead cuts at Three's Brewing in in Brooklyn on the third Wednesday of every month. It is uh, Three's Brewing Grateful Dead night, and I know he often camps out there with uh, Scott Devendorf, who plays bass the National, as well as their friend and my friend Bradley Goodman, and they go into um, usually the live music archive, and they just spin like these large four or five hour sets of uh, like classic dead. It's a very good vibe. I highly recommend you guys coming out. If you like drinking really good beer and happen to be in the Brooklyn area, but uh, he's got a lot of stories to tell. He's a very good conversationalist. And I think I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, I greatly enjoyed this um, to hear his perspective on the compilation of the day of the dead. I think you guys are going to really enjoy kind of where they pick what they were picking and choosing in terms of what artists to include, what songs to have them do. He gets into details about some of the really cool recording sessions that happened, uh, particularly that really big version of Terrapin station that um, was recorded with um, members of Grizzly bear. And then um, you all know, one of our favorite bands here at beyond the pond is the national and Conrad has performed with the national. He was actually up on stage, uh, when when Trey performed with the National and he's got some really cool insights into that band, into their development, into kind of the weird little dance that Fish and the National have been putting on over the last five to six years that hasn't really led to any sort of like true collaboration, but like there have been hints of members playing with each other and um They're kind of like on like the other side of the gym from each other. Too. Yes use the title of a recent national song. Uh, they're on the dark side of the gym from one another, kind of 
It's like, get together, guys. Get together for the dance. Get together for the big stairway to heaven dance. Come on. Yes, and Conrad joins us to uh, advocate along with us that we're all we'd all be happier to, together dancing in the uh, <laughs> dancing under the lights. So <laughs> no, but it's a it's a great it's a great chat, and um, we were definitely excited to have Conrad on. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Conrad Doucet. So, yeah, I mean, I was so 1.0, I didn't realize it was 1.0. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I was, um, I saw Fish three times back then. I saw, uh, well, let's see, I actually have the dates here because I wanted to, uh, let's see. The first time I saw Fish was on December 11th, 1992 at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor. Uh it was a great show. The second time I saw Fish was about five months later, four or five months later, um, April 18th, 1993, at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor. And they did two shows that time, and I only went to one. But I remember they did two shows. That's insane that there was a point um, in time where you could see Fish in the same venue within five months of each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, was, it was really cool. Um, and then the third time was... A year and a half after that, and that would be the fall of 1994, it was no, November 16th, 1994 at the Hill Auditorium in Ann Arbor. And oh, man. So Hill Auditorium is a, is a big, beautiful room, and the Michigan Theater is a beautiful room, um, but it's, it's definitely a little smaller. The Michigan Theater is like a small theater or a very large movie theater is how I would is to give you an idea of what it's like. Um, so they would often show films there. They had a lot of live concerts. They also, I saw a lot of concerts there. They had things like a Henry Rollins, you know how Rollins does like talking. Spoken word. (laughs) Spoken word. Yeah. And I remember I saw Rollins doing spoken word at the Michigan theater once and they had to, he ran up against his time limit, which he got very upset about because there was a movie (laughs) being scheduled to start at like 1130 PM. And we all had to leave so that the movie could start. So that's the kind of place the Michigan Theater was. And it's still there. And they gave it a brand new marquee a few years ago. And it's just this big, beautiful place. But Hill Auditorium is like real. You're, it, it's like stepping up to a Radio City level of opulence. Uh, it's big and gorgeous in there. And I had nosebleeds for that Hill Auditorium show. Um and it, it just, we were looking way down at the band. They were way, way down there. But uh, it was a weekend night, I feel like it was. And we walked, it was about a 15 minute walk from my apartment at the time and straight across campus, walked right into the show. And they opened with a sample in a jar. 
and I, I just remember those chords, just fat chords ringing out. Oh, it was heaven. It was great. Back in 1994, you probably would have thought it was cool and unique to get a sample in a jar opener. But when they do that in 2018, people are like, eh, all right. <laughs> uh, well, I also, I remember being really into the idea that it was um, a mid-tempo song, kind of. Uh, especially because Fish was, was and is known for like really being able to play fast very well you know um right and right. certainly faster than say a grateful dead opening number and so when they settled when they started with that i was like wow this is i was caught off guard happily this is just like i didn't expect to like sink into that you know slowish head bobbing so early in the show uh but i was impressed i i, I really enjoyed it i i think the only thing that annoyed me about the show which is all on me is that I was not as expert in like their body of work as I was with the dead. And I'm such an obsessive stats nerd that it, that it annoyed me. And of course this is pre mobile phone and internet. So I couldn't just like look at my phone or I couldn't text Dave, for example, and say, is this what I think it is? You know? Um, so a lot of the songs <laughs> went by, I was like, I don't know this. I don't know this. Oh, I know this. Uh, but yeah, what a great show. So those three shows I went to and then, Fish started to get, you know, they were just exponentially getting bigger and bigger very fast back then. And they almost, like, it, it got so big that I had to direct my financial and attention and time resources to the dead or fish, and I went with the dead. Um, so that's why I sort of stepped away from fish, only because didn't have the, the time and the resources in my life. And that's the only reason. Were you seeing like if you directed energy towards the dead, when the dead were forced to call it quits in 95, I mean, you didn't let go on tour like further. No, I actually, th that, I mean, that was pretty heartbreaking for me. I, I was, I, I, I was so excited for that fall 95 tour because they were, they, had, they were going to play uh, the Sky Dome in Toronto and I'd, I'd gone to high school in Toronto. So I was so excited for that. And I was talking about those Skydome shows, which is when someone overheard me and gave me the news. I was like, oh, well, that's a bummer. When the last rose of summer breaks my face And the hot sun chills me to the bone That I can't hear the song So that co that coincided with, uh, you know, lots of great indie rock, you would call it like alternative or independent music back then. And I was getting really into a lot of British bands that were, you know, there were so many great bands at the time, like Pulp and, and Blur. And 
I just, mm. I took, I took, like, the ending of the Grateful Dead sort of like, I didn't make a conscious decision to step away from sort of that that broad universe, but it, it it's what happened, and um, I started just focusing on those bands more. I saw all those bands that year, and the next year I, I ended up moving to England, so that was both you know geographically and mentally a much different place you know away from this world and so because I had a very similar experience about 10 years later when Fish, what we thought, broke up for good. Um, I had, I didn't have, there wasn't like, I mean, I guess that there were a ton of smaller jam bands to jump to, but I was not interested at all in kind of replicating what I'd experienced with Fish, which sounds like you were in a similar boat with not wanting to replicate your experience with the Grateful Dead. And that was... 2005, 2006, 2007, I basically stepped completely away from Fish, discovered this whole new realm of music, started finding all these indie rock bands, diving back into classic rock that I had only listened to like on the radio and just really kind of widening what kind of music I was listening to. And had Fish never come back in 09, I don't see there being a need for a beyond the pond podcast. I don't see myself going to a bunch of other jam band shows. I feel like I would have just spent, you know, the, the next 10, 12 years up until now, just like immersed in the indie rock world. Um, obviously you didn't have that option, you know, in, in, in 1995 or 1999 with, with the great grateful dead. Oh, I was just going to say, there's something to be said about taking, taking these breaks because, um, you know, I was, so into this world and when there were, when there was that seismic shift it just seemed best to step back and take stock and when i ended up returning the the joy was that much sweeter um it was just you know uncovering this forgotten but favorite book in the attic for example and and when i went to that fish show at the garden uh on, on December 29th, it was like that. Yeah. I mean, it would, I was just so, I, I was thrilled. I, I was in heaven. It was, it was, a, it was truly joyous. Um, I found out I was going on Christmas day. Um, our friend Bradley that, that Dave knows as well texted and he just said, you know, hello friend, I have an extra ticket for fish on the 29th. Would you like to be my guest? And this being like the most recent 29th, just to clarify. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners. Just, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. December 29th, uh, 2018. And I got so excited reading the text <laughs> and, and, you know, your mind can work so quickly. And, and in two seconds, I realized 
I think I might be back all, all in like the initial grasping of what I just read. <laughs> um, so I just wrote back. I was like, I, I am in, I was actually out at, at dinner with um, my family and my extended, like my, my wife's entire family. And I just, I just said, hello, uh, can I, can I go to a concert on Saturday? And there was just a shrug, like, yes. And I just immediately texted back, I'm in. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we spent, I spent all week just getting more and more excited about it. And I started doing a lot of research because I wanted to go in knowing what I heard um, and being able to sort of, you know, put some of the music into context. Like, oh, this is a, an old song that, came back recently, or this is a song, they, a new song from say three years ago, or this is whatever. And um, boy, fish.net was great for that. <laughs> uh, mm. These, the song histories and bios and all that, it was fantastic. So I, what I did was I just started looking at pretty recent set lists, like from 2018, 2017. And the songs that I, I didn't recognize, I just went and gave, I studied up. And by the time I got to the 29th, four days later, I felt pretty confident that I was going to go in and kind of be able to make sense of what they what they threw at, threw at us. Um, yeah, Dave, I texted you during the opening. And I was like, is this Buried Alive? Which is a song that I'd only listened to, I think, twice. Um, but I'd done some research and I knew it was a somewhat frequent opener. And you were back, yes. I was like, all right. Okay, we stopped <laughs> to a good... We're, my, my plan worked and we're off to a good start. first thought and they played that okay conrad's here and they're playing a song that was popular back in 1992 very cool <laughs> i had some friends over on like the 28th or something and i was so into at that point i was into day three of being way back into fish and we were in our in my basement and i was i was playing the uh that 12 31 95 show um, oh yeah but that's a lot of people think that's the best show fish has ever played and I think you can make a pretty good argument for it because top to bottom, I would not it say I would not say they are wrong. Yeah, it doesn't stop top to bottom, just from like the punch in the eye opener to the huge Mike song, which is, resolves itself as the weak upon groove in set three with the "You Enjoy Myself" classic Reba. I mean, everything about that show. I mean, that's arguably, I'll tell you, like December '95 could very well be the best month in the history of fish. And that show is just the capper. Yes. I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious, Conrad, from your perspective, because. So your last show being fall 94, um, when they were still playing theaters and just starting to dip their toes into um, like uh, minor league hockey arenas, not before, not, not playing NBA arenas at this point yet to seeing them 25 years later, essentially 
you know, one thing that strikes me is I, I see, I've, I've been seeing fish now for essentially 15 years. There was a five-year gap in there due to them, not me. Um, and, and there's always this, like, there's a sense of familiarity when I walk into a show. It, there, you know, the technology has changed on the lights. The formation has changed for the band's lineup. But when it really comes down to it, there's that, like, blue go- blue glow on the stage before they come on. Everyone kind of mingles in a very similar way. Um, I'm curious for you, s- seeing them in these small theaters, to jumping to see them at Madison Square Garden, which, you know, you had gotten away from the band before they really made that leap. Did it feel that different to you seeing them? And did it also... Did you have an idea that they would end up in this type of position when you were seeing them back in 92, 93, 94? In 92 or 93, I I didn't think about it. So I guess it didn't occur to me. They were just like this up and coming cool band that East Coast friends liked. Um, okay. <laughs> but but in 94, right. yeah, they were clearly on the ascent. Um, it, it was in that time period, which is where it became obvious so I'm going to say that going into the garden and seeing them, it it felt like nothing had changed. And I mean that in the best possible way. They, yeah, yeah. The, the, you know, I can picture that first fish show, that December 92 show. I know where I was. I, I was like about halfway on the floor, slightly left center. And, you know, I can picture and I just remember being close enough to see the smiles on the band's faces. And that came through even in section 212 or wherever we were in the garden, which was way up high uh, on on Mike's side. And it it didn't feel like we were in way up high seats in, in the largest arena in the country. It felt mm. just great. It felt right. Um, and I don't know if I would have had that feeling coming in and seeing them for the first time ever in an arena. My guess is I would because the room was electric, like the crowd was electric, but you know, it, it from the 1800 seats or whatever the Michigan theater was to 20,000 at the garden didn't feel that different. And that's, that's entirely on both the band and the fans. I think it also helps that in terms of a show to see after a 24 year hiatus, like God, 12, 29, 18 was a fucking corker. That's, <laughs> that's a, that's a, fantastic show well as as about halfway through the first set i i was thinking to myself and i said to my friend i just said is this is this as good as i think it is like obviously i'm i'm, I'm enjoying it so it's enjoyable you know that's a subjective thing but I'm like, right. i feel like we're seeing a quote-unquote like you know good show like this is something like the heads will will talk about later um and Thankfully, Dave confirmed that uh, later on that it was indeed a very good show. Yeah, it was. No, because I had told you earlier um, at the bar before the show, yeah, the 28th was fine, but they weren't really reaching for the brass ring. Mm-hmm. That was very much a warm up show, which, you know, even when you have a band that does as much improvisation as Fish does, you know, sometimes you're going to have the warm up show, which is what makes the good shows that much better. Mm hmm. So 29th is one of those shows that certain fans get defensive about. They think it's that good. You know, there, there are those shows that like the, the fan base will kind of, um, 
all kind of accept like 1228 is perfect example of this was just kind of an off show 1229 is the kind of show that there's you you could talk to 10 different fish fans and at least six of them are gonna swear that it was the best if if not the best one of the top two or three shows of the year um and it was it definitely felt that way i was watching it from the couch and i thoroughly enjoyed that and it might have gotten topped by 1230 that was it yeah that was all that uh um which was very very unexpected no you you didn't you didn't see that one coming well well the great thing about both of those shows is um is they're they're excellent for different reasons and they each have their own character and that's why the the debate can go on happily forever um i think i prefer my i think i would prefer my my 29th show anyway because uh it was a little bit more of a softer landing for me returning to the fold so to speak um and e- even when they went off into crazy directions like that tweezer it was something that was very up my alley too You know, this was my first full fish show in you know quite a long time, but I have been in the room, so to speak, for snippets of three other semi-recent, relatively recent fish um, performances. Uh, and one of them was Bonnaroo. Was it 2009 they played? Uh, yeah, they've done 09 and 2012 were the only were the last two. Okay, so. It, it was it was oh nine then. So I was actually okay. I was working that Bonnaroo. I was working for Fuse, the television network, uh, sort of like their digital person. So that meant I got a photo pass, and so I was in the photo pit for the first fish song of one of the nights, the ACDC bag um, okay. opener. Okay. And I didn't. And 14. I didn't. Re- I kind of remember. I was like, "What is this?" And um, I was next to my friend Amrit from from Stereo Gum, who is very knowledgeable fish person really i didn't realize that i didn't realize till he told me in the pit he was like oh yeah and he gave me this brief rundown on the on the songs <laughs> um, and, you know, it, we um 
generally when you're in the photo pit for these things, there's a th you get three songs as a photographer, but with fish, the rules were different. And basically like after about 10 minutes, we were, we were told to all leave. Um, so those two, I, I heard snippets of that. And then, um, and then the, just a few months later or before, within the next, within a year, fish performed at the, um, rock and roll hall of fame induction ceremony. Oh, is that where they, they play Genesis? They did, and I was also at that. Um, right, they played again, Watcher of the Skies, right? They played Watcher of the Skies, yeah. It's pretty awesome. Um, and actually, speaking of Stereo Gum, I was working for Fuse again at that thing, but Stereo Gum would go too. Um, Scott, who's the founder and editor of Stereo Gum, is Genesis is his favorite band of all time, so he's very excited for this. Um, he, he flipped his wig when he heard Watcher of the Skies. Watcher of the Skies, Watcher of Every time they play a Halloween show, half the fan base says, you guys got to play The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. We know Trey loves it. Give the fans what they want. And Trey even like said, maybe we'll do that one time. And there was, there was no way in hell they were ever going to play The Lamb on Halloween. Yeah. Uh, geez, Fish playing The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway would be absolutely amazing. That's a very long album, which is it's a lot to learn. <laughs> It's a lot to learn, and yet, like, Trey has expressed his affinity for that record so many times that he could probably, I don't know if he could do it in his sleep, but either they'd be capable of doing that. I don't think I realized, I, I always knew that it was a huge influence for the band, and if you listen to the record, you can just hear kind of snippets of the band um, kind of lurking in there and where they got their influences from, but when we sat down with Tom Marshall last year and talked with him, it was it was waxing nostalgia of, you know, high school Saturday nights where him and Trey and a couple of other friends would just throw that record on. And it was the only thing that they were listening to. It's, it's a great record. Like, I mean, oh, geez, well, now I'm going to listen to it this weekend. Uh, <laughs> speaking, but speaking of like, um, of, of Genesis, this is just reminding me now that a song like Abacab, which is a great, great song. Geez. Like that could fit in to a, um, that could be like a, well, guys, what is the name of the, uh, of Fish's like costume from this past year? Casvada. Casvodvox. So they, <laughs> that band, quote unquote, should cover Abacab as like a digital B-side to go along with it. I feel like that fits right into the vibe of uh, the musical vibe of those songs. Yeah. Can we talk about how great those new songs are? Like. By all means. They're incredible. Um. I feel like I've periodically checked in with like new fish studio albums and none of them have grabbed me too much, but it was, that was always kind of to be expected almost, you know, uh, because 
you're not alone yeah, in that. The, and I, I know that Casba vaxxed is as good as as you think it is. I, I want to buy it on vinyl. Please release it. <laughs> yes, yes. There's. I, mean, I got into a conversation with some people on Twitter. There's there's a large percentage of the fan base that's begging the band to actually do a full studio treatment because a lot of those songs if they had the right producer, if they spent the right amount of time on it would really blow up in the studio. And there's a lot you could see happen with a song like turtle in the clouds. And we are come to outlive our brains and play by play. And, you know, the back half of the record, especially I feel like with just some sonic kind of, I don't know, just treating the studio like a laboratory, like they did on the story of the ghost record could really do some wonders for those songs, but get brain, you know, I know, I know. It's the perfect record for him to finally produce for them. Um, you know, I know Dave and I have talked on here that I think it's the best batch of songs that they've released in 15 years. And I think the fact that, you know, they've written these kind of proper studio records over the last few years while also using their Halloween shows, not just as a display of their influences, but as a way to really surprise their fans into un- unveiling 10 to 15 new songs uh, at a time has been a really unique aspect of modern day fish. And I don't think anybody saw them spinning what they did in 2013 with debuting the wingsuit set to writing brand new songs based off of a spoken word, Disney Halloween album to creating a band out of the fly creating a backstory and covering said band. Like it's, it's to me such an accomplishment of creativity this late in their career. And the fact that the songs are that good makes it even better. Didn't they say that had curveball not been canceled, there's a chance that like Casa Vax wouldn't have happened. That's what I've been hearing that um, a lot of these songs began as grooves for the late night, the secret set jam that they were going to do under big silver. And that when it was canceled, they, you know, had kind of uh, skeletons of songs written and they did um, like a lyric writing exercise, almost like passing around similar to like what they would did with the blob for Billy Breeze. Right. Where, you know, rather than recording one note, someone wrote like one line and then the next person wrote a line until they had a song completed. Um, I know that like part of Turtle in the Clouds was written that way, like kind of the midsection where they're all singing individually. But um, yeah, it really kind of showcases what they can do from a spontaneous standpoint when, when put to the test.
So one of the other reasons, Conrad, I wanted to get you on here is um, I know that between me and Brian, kind of between ourselves and the people that we try to attract on Beyond the Pond are uh, like major fish and deadheads, but also the same people who check like Stereo Gum and Brooklyn Vegan and like Pitchfork on a fairly regular basis, more of uh, like the indie rock community, kind of where the two circles in the Venn diagram overlap, so to speak. So think about like two years ago when it was announced that the national who are a band that both Brian and myself love, were putting together this double disc tribute to the grateful dead. This was, this was Mana from heaven. And you actually had some, (laughs) and I know that you actually had some direct involvement in that. If you just want to talk about it. Yeah. uh, Well, um, yeah, I was one of the co-curators along with Brian and Scott Devendorf. Um, the, the credited main curators are Aaron and Bryce from the band. Um, and they were sort of spearheading the whole thing. And basically Brian and Scott and I, and then also our friend, Josh Kaufman, who was the musical director of, of all of it. it we, we were the we were the core group on like all of the email threads. And let me tell you that the year that we spent where most of the work on this album was done is just one of the most fun years of my life. Just even when we weren't actually recording, um, but just to participate in these incredibly fun email threads about like, Hey, so-and-so wants to do it. Let's start to get what songs, you know, what songs do we think would be, would, might be a good fit and just, getting these together and then, all right, we're going to pitch these five songs and send it off to, you know, perfume genius or whatever. Um, so much fun. So yeah. So for that, for that album, what we did was it was originally going to be probably some sort of double record or something. Um, I guess like kind of like dark was the night, which is the previous red hot benefit that Aaron and Bryce had done. Um, but it just kept going and going and, you know, how do you stop (laughs) with that, with that body of, uh, of song. And that, that also became one of our in, sort of inside jokes throughout the whole thing was just like, once we finish with this 59 song set, you know, volume two's coming. <laughs> um, uh, which was, is still a joke. We like to, uh, surface from time to time, but <laughs> yeah. So what happened was, uh, we just started getting the, uh, these ideas together. I know Aaron and Bryce have, have, had the idea for a Grateful Dead thing for for a long time, like for dating back many years. And it just coincided with the fact that, you know, they had done Dark Was the Night in 2000, I don't know when that was, eight or something, and a few years had passed. And coincidentally, there had been an invitation, or I'm not sure exactly how it happened from the Bob Weir people in California to do a headcount uh, awareness benefit show thing and it was called uh the bridge session and the, the whole the whole like sort of uh, imagery uh and metaphor of the bridge was that they were going to bridge the worlds of jam jam band world and the indie rock world and the national were a good fit for that i'm not i don't know if they know that four-fifths of the national were big grateful dead fans uh but it totally it, it worked. <laughs> it all worked out. So the one fifth being Matt, right? Yeah, Matt Berninger is not so not so he's 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 not so into it all, but um I I know that he did come out of it with with uh 
great new respect for not only the dead, but just, I think, for an entire universe that he sort of used to previously uh, not give a lot of thought to. Um, oh, but, you know, Aaron and Bryce and Brian and Scott are just longtime deadheads. And Brian and Scott and I were going to various, you know, dead offshoot projects shows for years. Like we went to like The Dead, <laughs> if you remember The Dead. We went to a show at Nassau Coliseum together. That was, that was, that was a hoot. Um, but yes, we did, we all did that Bob Weir show. And then from that, that just kicked the whole day of the dead project into faster gear. Um, was that the Bob Weir show where, I'm sorry, where he tries to, um, he tries to sing daughters, the Soho riots. (laughs) Yeah. That was my idea. I think, I think I suggested daughters. All right. Um, And it was sort of, he kind of gamely does like a spoken word effort through it. Right. Well, that was sort of the best way. But the thing is, um, he didn't really, his style, his vocal style sometimes just doesn't match the character of a given song. Um, and so at that point, he doesn't even attempt to mimic the rhythm, the vocal rhythm. And I think he just kind of makes it his own. <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, yeah, so, so that was, that was fun. He, uh, uh, he did, we did fake empire too. Um, those were the two national songs. Uh, but he, he was game and like, um, he's, he's such a great guy to play with cause he's so enthusiastic and positive and he's just quietly optimistic about everything. And he, he's ready to give anything a go. Um, so yeah, while, while we were playing, it, just like, I can't believe I'm playing daughters of the solo riots, which has always been like one of my favorite national songs to listen to but also to play whenever I've sat in with them I just love playing that song and it's like I can't believe Bob's singing <laughs> you know we're looking up like wow I have your good clothes in the car so cut your hair so no one knows I have your dreams and your teeth marks all my fingernails are painted I'm here to take you now About the end, it didn't make a difference. Everything I can remember, I remember wrong. How can anybody know how they got to be this way? You must have known. I'd do this someday Break my arms around the one I love And be forgiven by the time my lover comes Break my arms around my love Break my arms around the one I love And be forgiven by the time my lover comes Break my arms around my love you're a drummer, right? I am a drummer, yeah. Uh, and so, like, yeah, the reason I got pulled into that whole thing is that uh, I sat in with the National, uh, dating back to, I guess, the late aughts. Um, and Brian, the National's drummer, is one of my best friends. And he used to sit in with my old indie band, Taka Taka. Uh, he played on 
he he contributed percussion to two of our three records and um and in new york he would sit in like whenever he was available which was basically when as long as they weren't on tour he was around so you know you always there'd be like a second drum set at our mercury lounge shows or whatever um so they were obviously all well aware of my grateful dead fandom and background so when this project happened i got quote unquote the official invitation to be part of uh you know the um the brain trust for it and yeah super super fun also you know i want to connect the national back to this uh in 2011 they wrapped up their high violet tour uh with um what was it six nights at the beacon theater and i played i played four of them i think and um and Trey, Trey was at night five. So he came and played night five. And so I got to play with Trey with, along with the national, um, on a few songs, the few songs that Trey sat in on just, that was a great experience. And man, he wailed on the guitar. Um, I think we played murder me, Rachel, which is one of their early rockers. Mm-hmm, and, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. And to see Trey with that, you know, with his guitar, you know, that Trey guitar and with that leaning forward stance he has, uh, but playing these national songs, that was killer. Yeah. I remember seeing that came out uh, for me. I'd always been, you know, aware of the national and had been told by thousands of friends that boxer was one of the best albums of, of the last decade for me it was high violet was, was like the moment that the light bulb went off and they became one of my three or four favorite bands. And, you know, it was more than anything. It was Brian Devendorf's drumming that, um, uh, you know, on terrible love and, um, little faith and, um, blood Buzz Ohio, you know, these songs that like, I was hearing this band in a completely different way. But, um, it, when I, I remember when, I was getting the YouTube links of Trey playing with the national and what he added to the band. You know, he's always so interesting when he sits in because he never really wants to like push himself that much, that, that much into the center, but he always kind of gets nudged there. And when he does, he makes the song, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's a really special version with him. There's a bunch of sit-ins with him that were being shared throughout, uh, Twitterverse last last week, um, there's a big thread going around about it, and 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 hearing him just add a bit of fish into the national was like a marrying of two worlds that I did not think that was ever going to happen, but I was very pleased to. Um, I don't know how, and based on the the recent cover that Fish did of Radiohead's um, "Everything in Its Right Place," I don't know how well a national song would translate to a Fish show. But that doesn't mean that I don't want it to happen. <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I, I, I feel like Fish could do something interesting, and not, and maybe not even a straight cover, but like even take some musical element and like, you know, weave it into something instrumental. Like, right? You know, they they could do something something really cool because you know Matt is also a unique singer in the sense it's like it's it, it is hard to like, you know, maybe don't even try to to do you know do a, a traditional cover, but you know drop drop in a jam you know drop drop something into <laughs> drop some sort of like you know lemon world jam in the middle of tweezer um oh, i'd be i'd be so into that <laughs> tweezer asterisk with lemon world quotes. yeah with, yeah just throw in some quotes 
just give me some quotes. Um, I'm I'm curious. You you mentioned something earlier that um, I'd been thinking about. I was I was listening to Day of the Dead over the last couple of days, um, just kind of refreshing my mind with that whole compilation. And um, you had mentioned Perfume Genius, and um, I remember listening to what does he play to lay, to lay me down mm-hmm. with Sharon Van. Yeah. yeah. So I, I have no idea if, if he is a grateful dead fan. Um, and I'm, I'm intrigued either way. Um, and I'm curious from your guys' standpoint, like was the approach with artists, we want to find grateful dead friendly artists, like in quotes, like, like artists who, who, who really respect and love the work of the grateful dead and are familiar with it. Or did you have an idea that this is a song we want on here and this is an artist that we really want to cover it? Um, it was, we obviously wanted, if, if artists were dead fans, like um, we wanted them, but uh, no, I think the idea, what most excited us was to get someone like a perfume genius on there. And he, from what I understand, he was not a, not a dead fan, really. He just, he just said yes and said, sure. And I think also like the song that, we suggested, which was to lay me down. Um, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful song. It's undeniably a beautiful melody, totally. a beautiful lyric. And it, it's so sort of uh, just, it's, it's, it's own dark world. That song that I think he knew he could do something great with it, which obviously he did. Um, and that speaks so much about like the larger music of the Grateful Dead is you don't have to be a fan. You, you, you listen to the lyrics, you listen to a performance of one of those songs and you can take it into a thousand different ways in your reinterpretation. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Like there's, there's a real strength in the melody and a real timeless wisdom in, in the words. And I, and I think that appeal, you know, just stretches uh, endlessly. And I, you know, obviously if, if a song like to lay me down written in the early seventies, you know, can work so well, by perfume genius in, in 2015 you know that that really says something about the quality of, of the song to lay me down Oh God! Yeah, the Malcolmus, the like China writer, right? <laughs> yeah, because I I think that like Malcolmus has a mild dead fandom, uh, but from what I understand, there's like the the drummer maybe someone else in the band was um an actual like had actual deadhead experience in him. Um, Out of all the guys in that band in the Jicks, the drummer definitely looks like the headiest. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, something like Malkvis. I, when we were, when we did our first of 
like a few of the main recording sessions we did with the quote unquote house band, which was us, which is any of those tracks that say and friends, like we're, we're the house band, you know, uh, but uh, like when I was at Terrapin Station for the house band, right? Yeah, that was a little bit of a different thing because we did Terrapin Station two months later um, in a different studio nearby in Hudson. Most most of the and friends stuff was done in Woodstock, um, but Terrapin was uh, not everyone from the house band made it to that one, and also that was like half of Grizzly Bear was there. You know, they were like right. the people doing that song. So yeah, that song ended up getting credited in a different way for some weird reason. But um, yeah, the Terrapin took up an entire day and a half. Like, um, and that's not even including all the orchestration that Bryce did, um, you know, on the side, like in the city he did a few weeks later. Uh, yeah, Terrapin was its own awesome monster to tackle. Um, and, we, and a lot really went into it. It took a lot of work. Uh, and Chris Bear, what a great drummer. So I was, I was set up next to him, two drum sets, and he is so good at like, he's such a, like there was, I don't like to just double up drumming, which is one thing, reason I think Brian and I play so well together is that we, I like weave in and out of what he's doing because he's always leaving space. But um, Chris is a very swirling drummer. So I ended up doing very little percussion on that because there was no need, you know, <laughs> like played a bit and I sang a bit, but I was almost more in a producing role with that one. It was just this big, this big project um, in this beautiful church. Uh, it was really beautiful experience uh, doing Terrapin. But yeah, all those and friends things that that's the house band. And we had like all the singers come up to Woodstock uh, one by one. And the schedule for that week was crazy. It was like, Oh, Ira Kaplan from Yola Tango is going to be here first half of the day. And then Will Oldham will be here second half of the day. That's Wednesday. You know, it's like, it was like that for a week. Um, like Joe Russo and then Lee Ronaldo. And then it's like, wow. Um, Really, really fantastic week. It's like um, you're playing a modern day last waltz that's like spread across months. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and it was just, you know, it was great. We were up in this dusty church in Woodstock and a foot of snow on the ground outside and um, pretty, pretty magical. I know at one point, Matt Berninger kind of, um, he returned the favor. I think one time I was telling you he actually sings backup vocals on the Trey Anastasio solo album Traveler. He sings backup vocals on Let Me Lie. Yes, he does. Because I think and that record was produced by Peter Cadis. Yes, yeah. Peter Cadis did that record. And Brian plays drums on it too, I think. It's, it's somewhere on there. Um, yeah, well, you know, Peter obviously uh, produced Alligator for the National and Boxer for the National. Um, Peter's actually on the cover of Boxer on the artwork. Uh, that's it was his, his wedding, right? I think that's his brother's wedding. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it's Tarquin's wedding. Um, but, uh, yeah, so then, you know, Peter's just done a lot of great records. He did a Turn On the Bright Lights by Interpol, uh, which he has great stories about, which I he just told me a recent one a few months ago uh, <laughs> about Stella was a diver and she was always down. I, didn't, I, didn't, <laughs> I was like, oh, I never knew that little story. He's a very genial fun loving guy peter and i i think that's 
part of why he's so in demand um, is he's very good at what he does, but also he's just like really nice, pleasant person to be around. Um, to Trey coming to the Beacon Theater to sit in. Um, I think it was originally like, because that record came, was was made around then, I think. I think so, yeah. Traveler, I want to say 2012, yeah, 2011, 2012. Traveler's an interesting record. It's definitely the most like produced sounding Trey Soul album. And that usually most Trey Solo records kind of just sound like a live band in a room. Mm-hmm. Whereas Traveler, you could tell that the like producer had some input and he was definitely going for more of like a layered like indie rock sound. It's got some very good songs on it. The opening track on that album, Corona, is one of the single best Trey Studio songs. And Fish played it once in Chicago in 2017. And I got excited that they were going to make Corona part of the repertoire. And so far they have not. So I'm hoping that'd be very much a bust out I would like to hear. Yeah, it sounds, it's like but, the, the Ruben and Charisse of Trey and Fish. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> exactly.
Atre to go backwards in time and develop such a affection for Bob Ezrin mm. um, after dipping his toe into the indie rock world and finding such success on, on, on a uh, recording standpoint. I feel like Fuego and Big Boat could be two totally different records in that case. That's a good question. That's a good what if, if Peter Cadis had produced Fuego and Big Boat, both of which are Bob Ezrin and both of which neither are bad, but I could see certainly like Casvote Vox to me is far more enjoyable than either Big Boat or Fuego. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed Fuego when it first came out. I, I kind of tired of it after a few listens. Um, um, Big Boat, I was always kind of, I mean, what, what they did with Casvote Vox is kind of, um, you know, a, a band like Fish that isn't a traditional studio band that makes the record and then goes on a tour as a result of that. They could not release a record for the rest of their career and still tour every summer and every fall. Um, Casvote Vox is kind of up to, is more in line with what I'd love to see them continue to do in terms of experimenting with studio records. But our Bob Ezrin digressions uh, know no limit on this podcast. You know that, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Well, can I, let, let me ask a quick question though, because I'm I'm actually yeah, fascinated yeah. as a longtime liner notes reader. Like, so um, how is Bob Ezrin uh, uh, received by the the Fish Faithful? Mm. Not incredibly well, especially at this point. I think the the perception in the in the Fish Faithful is um, yeah, he was that, a bit of a bully a bit of a bully. He pushed out some really great songs that were written between 2013 and 2016. Um, the production on the records um, come out. They're, they're very big sounding uh, and, and they're very, they're very shimmery and they're very kind of glossy around the edges. Whereas a fish show kind of lives in this like, uh, I, I, well, I guess the challenge is like at a fish show, there's so much um, uh, placed on the unknown, you know, and you, you think about like the tweezer that you guys saw in 1229. Nothing was to predict when that tweezer began that it was going to find its way into an earworm jam that resembled I Know You Writer. And that sort of unknown and that surprise is something that you get out of a fish show and a grateful dead show that you don't get with every live show you go and see and their albums especially these recent ones produced by bob ezrin just sound like if you cut a fish song like if you just like cut out what a fish song is supposed to be and plastered on recording there's nothing surprising there's nothing really led left to mystery with it i mean yeah it's a little bit static a little bit shiny and you're left to wonder why the guy who produced like classic rock opuses like Pink Floyd's The Wall and, and Lou Reed's Berlin and like some Kiss albums, you know, had to come at this late stage to produce a Fish album. Um, what do Fish, what do Fish themselves think of Bob Ezrin? I, well, mean, I guess they, they did use two them, records. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. They use them for two records. So no, I think, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure i know there was a rolling stone article right before big boat came out as part of like the big boat promotional push where i know um i think they talked a little bit about bob ezrin 
And I think Bob Ezrin or someone told the bass player, Mike Gordon, that one of like his favorite songs was cut and Mike got like a little uncomfortable and like some people read into that one way. But they used him twice. And I guess they like hanging out in um, Nashville, Tennessee, where he's based. There's a, certainly that seems to be an environment that's like conducive to making good music and, and, and eating good food. I'm curious, Conrad, jumping back to uh, Day of the Dead, were there any performances or any artists that you guys weren't able to lock down that you had really wished that you, that, that you would have gotten in there? Yeah. Um, you know, we got almost just about everyone we wanted, but here, here's the funny thing. We wanted Bob and um, he just couldn't make it work. Uh, he, he wanted to do it too, but we wanted to do something. We didn't know what but like a Bob in the studio thing. Uh, and, um, and Phil separately, we wanted Phil Lesh. And he also sh- showed interest. And then that one didn't come together. And I'm less clear about why on that one. Um, although, I, you know, Phil, Phil Lesh always seems to do things his own particular way. So um, who knows, maybe he woke up one day and decided he didn't want to contribute any effort to it, uh, which is totally reasonable. Uh, but yeah, those, those were the ones like we wanted actual dead members and uh, it just, it didn't happen. They, it, it almost happened and it didn't happen. We were like, ah, and we, we kept kind of like, we we're waiting till the last second and we're like, could we, you know, it's still possible. We, we, we have 30 days till the deadline. And finally we just said, okay, it's not going to happen. I think Hornsby's on there though, right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Hornsby's on it. Um, which I am, I was so psyched about. I, I loved, he does black Monty river. Oh, right? yeah, it's so good too. It's awesome. Um, yeah, that's the one where it's Dearmond Edison, which is basically Justin Vernon and megaphones pre Bonavere band. And, and so it's them and Hornsby doing it. And, I remember that Aaron Dessner couldn't, th- so they recorded that at April Base, which is Justin's like house studio, his house thing out in Wisconsin. And I remember Aaron couldn't make it. And we were like, uh oh, should we be worried that like there's no, you know, grown up in the room, so to speak, overseeing the, uh, the Black <laughs> Muddy Rivers? Because we just pictured like, uh, you know, Justin and everyone just like having a ball and laughing all weekend. And we're like, well, you know, is he going to deliver the goods? And uh, obviously we were never seriously worried about it, but you know, it was, that was sort of like the running, that, that was the email running joke of that week. And then just one day in our inboxes, Aaron, you know, you see, you know, you see the email subject like forward, like FW colon, and it was Black Muddy River. And he just, all Aaron writes is boom beautiful listen and it was <laughs> when the last rose of summer pricks my fingers and the hot sun chills me to the bone when i can't hear the song for the singer and i can't Tell my pillow from a stone, from a stone.
was I was at work. I was at my desk. I just had to like stand up. I was so excited. I couldn't believe what I was listening to. Yeah, so I love Hornsby. I saw Hornsby nine times with the Dead back, you know, back then, and um, I just, I you know, I was, I was so tickled that he was part of this thing. And then Black Muddy River is in my top one or two songs on the whole thing. I just think they did such a be- beautiful job with it. Yeah, I saw Hornsby three weeks after Jerry Garcia died at the Oak uh, the Oakdale Theater. In Wallingford, Connecticut, which is now Wallingford. I I've been to the Oakdale. Have you been in the round, or have you been in like the large? Because now it's like a gigantic barn with like plush seats. Yeah, I saw that because I googled it. I was curious. No, I mean I, I was there in the old the old in the round days. Okay, in the round days, right? Okay, now the in the round theater is the lobby. That's like where you, you mill around, you get your drinks and whatnot, and then you go into the gigantic theater. But yeah, I saw Hornsby in the round of 95 weeks after Jerry died. And it was just like one big therapy session. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was awesome. He played parts of, um, some guy just kept yelling for Jack Straw in between every song, which I guess is probably because Hornsby did like the Jack Straw cover on, um, dedicated, dedicated. Yes, that's right. But no, he did bits of, uh, like, you play mandolin rain and think he incorporated parts of like Terrapin station to that. There was like dead teases all night long. And it was, you know, he kept saying like, we lost a great friend. So we're going to pay tribute. It was extremely well done. And that was at the time he was touring behind his hot house album, which actually, uh, it's like the last, the last song on that album cruise control was Jerry Garcia's last recorded guitar solo in the studio. Was that song? Oh, wild! I did not know that. Yeah, it's a great song with a very classic Jerry guitar solo. my big Hornsby story and I think what else I saw him with the other ones in 1998 he was on the keyboards that was one of like the post one of the more successful post Jerry like dead things I think at the Harvard yeah they played those they played those big shows at Alpine Valley right yeah. in 2002 yeah yeah those were good those were a lot yeah. of guitarists it was like Steve Kimock Mark Karen Bob Weir and Hornsby, Hornsby's drummer, I think. John Molo. Yes, yes, that's right. Curious, what have you been listening to lately? Either something you can tell the listeners that's new, something that's coming out, uh, you know, like something modern. Something something modern that is still very much in this sort of like wheelhouse, I'd say. It's not very adventurous, but, um, you know, uh, I'd say over the past few years, the artist that I've really just enjoyed listening to almost more than any other as um, his golden messenger. Yeah. He's actually on. Yeah. He slash they are on day of the dead. And um, I've just had this like relationship with, with this band's music because um, like two years ago, 
like uh, when the Heart Like a Levy came out, that album was just very important to me. I just really loved it. My, my son, who was three then, actually <laughs> really liked the record, so we listened to it a lot. And uh, I saw him play this show about a week after the, the presidential election, and it was just very just um, cathartic. And I've gotten I've gotten to know him because Josh Kaufman, who was a friend of ours from Brook here in Brooklyn, and who's you know done all these all of our national weird Day of the Dead stuff. Um, Josh is kind of in the band, and um, so I've I've been following his closely. And he, I know he's got a new album that's probably going to come out this year. Um, um, I say probably because I think it's done. Uh, I know that's no no secret because he was posting about it on social media, but uh, he did it up at Aaron Dessner's studio, the national studio that's pictured on the cover of um, the last record, Sleep Well Beast. And um, where we did our Day of the Dead live show rehearsals, by the way, up there. Um, anyway, I was up there last month because the national played a benefit in Hudson and I just went up for the, the night for the fun of it because it was a Friday night and I stayed in the studio, I spent the night there. and. Um, so I got to hear uh, the new His Golden Messenger record. Just they, we played it over the studio monitors, and man, it's just so good. It's it's just it's just more awesome hiss. You know, it's it's no no great departure. It's just beautiful. He's incredible. I mean, his songs just imbues us a sense of hope. Mm-hmm. Like I really, yeah. in these times, he's the kind of artist that we need. I think to kind of get yeah the darkness. I mean, his last yeah. two records, like Heart Like a Levy and um, I guess Hallelujah Anyhow, are just both awesome. In fact... Yeah, and you know, they're very realist. They're, they're like grounded in reality, too. They're, they're not just like high in the sky, flower power, positivity. They're real, like, real reality-based, like, optimism that for our times. Right, right, right. Yeah, I had a very similar reaction to Heart Like a Levy as you did, my son had just turned one at that point. And, uh, that song in particular, heart, like a levy was, um, it's a very heavy, heavy song, but it kind of spoke to me in terms of like where I was in fatherhood at that point in time and kind of where I was in life. And I ended up seeing him in DC last December. It was one of the last shows of the year for them on the Holly anyhow tour. And they were playing, uh, Tom Petty mm -hmm. every night. It was a couple months after Petty passed yeah. away. And <clears throat> it was the same type of went with a couple of good, good friends and we were all right up front. And, um, you know, the show just, you know, for, for, for where we're at politically, socially, it was one of those concerts that I walked out of being like, I think everything's going to be okay. I think we have to like, you know, be really empathetic and loving, but also really honest and really, deeply said and you know what our values are and what we believe is right and, and and try to bring that out into the world and you definitely got that sense from him through his speech and his songwriting and just his presence on stage absolutely yeah a sweet May morning yeah lying in bed with nothing to say we'll pretend that we want to yeah tomorrow I'll be on Do you hate me, honey? Hate me, honey. Oh, it's 
much as I hate myself Hard like a levy Why swing for the mountain Double time Is it too heavy, honey? Did I carry my piece of the fire? You know, also, uh, the, the first song on um, on Hallelujah Anyhow, being Jenny of the Roses, to me that kind of sounds like a modern-day box of rain, just yeah. with the chords, yeah. with the message. Like, it almost sounds like box is going to come in on that song. Well, it's crazy because, you know, they, they play Brown-Eyed Woman on the um, Day of the Dead. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, every... I, I I connect that with the War on Drugs performance of um, uh, Touch of Grey that, you know, every other song on that record really resonates as, yes, it's a Grateful Dead song, but this is that artist's interpretation of it. And some of them are closer to the way the dead played it or versus further away. Touch of Grey and Brown Eyed Woman, it, I, I don't think that Hiss or the War on Drugs were trying to imitate the Grateful Dead in any way, but you can just hear the linear, like the, the, the dots connecting between the Grateful Dead and both of those bands. And it almost sounds effortless to me that they just sound like it's just kind of a modern update on what the Grateful Dead would have sounded like. I, I, I love how true and how honest they are to, to their original performance. Totally agree. Yeah. Brown eyed women in red grin the bottle was dusty, but the liquor was clean. Sound of the thunder and the rain pouring down. Then it looks like the old man getting on. I'm curious as well, before we go, um, I don't know if this is something you can speak on, but um, do we have any idea of like next direction for the national or do we have any idea of <laughs> next next creative process do we have to wait another three or four years <laughs> well i hope not um because i'm i'm as big a fan as i am you know like I, I play with i get to play with them sometimes but also i just like i love listening to them and i get excited for totally. the national music and i hope it will not be as long as that i can tell you that every single after every album, they have said the next one's coming like in in a year, a year and a half tops. You know, <laughs> they, it's funny because they say it every single time. And after uh, Trouble Will Find Me, like there was supposed to be like they, they were talking about like a real like moving away from the orchestration, just doing a short, straight, fast rock record in a year. And I was like, awesome, interesting. You know, <laughs> and then I, I, I mean, I remember we were walking through Chelsea. Uh, going to a show by this band people get ready i was with brian and scott and they were saying like i was like well, what's gonna happen he's like we're gonna do this fast thing we're gonna just bang it out i'm like that's awesome they're like yeah and then about six months later i was like wait a minute what happened to that record that was supposed to come out he's like they're like yeah that might not might not happen <laughs> i was like all right it's got to be safe to assume that turtleneck is the only yeah the only, the only that, piece from yeah, that, that survived the session is turtleneck survived because no, I, I, <laughs> I got to imagine like once they started writing the songs for sleep well beast they were like oh crap we're in for about two years of trying to make this work <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're a layer of that record no I, I i i mean they're always they're always working on something you know and i you know so um 
I hope sooner rather than later. Go back and make every song sound like available. Just do a whole album's worth of like availables. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's an old chestnut. Anger, anger. Mm-hmm. Back when they were single and angry. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, Conrad, we would love having this conversation with you. This is uh thank you. What? Thank you very much for coming on on the podcast. This has been great. Yeah, man, this was great chatting with you and hearing your perspective on fish and talking about the Day of the Dead, talking about the National. This was this was awesome. No, my my pleasure. And it's like it's it's just so great to you know, I feel like even just talking to you guys about all this is is part of my 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 return, you know, and it, it's it's just so much fun. So like, I mean, you know, what can you say? It's like great music, like like bands like Fish and bands like the Dead and the, and the National just. Ah, you know, it, it's it's why we it's for me it's like why you get up in the morning. So it's great to be back. <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to have you on after you see your second, third, fourth, yes. fifth, six shows back. Over, I'm presuming the next tour you'll you'll catch a bunch of those. Oh, We're playing yeah. in your area this entire summer. All right. On that note. Join us again in roughly two weeks. I think that's probably when our next episode will be coming out. We'll join hands. We will talk about how seeing nothing but fish makes you myopic. And then we will continue to go beyond the pond. You said in song that you would not talk about the bathrooms. You walk around while the city's on fire too. Osiris.